everyone, I'm Gary Danoff, and welcome to another edition of What's Next Now, featuring the stories and journeys from people who are building their careers and their life and all the crazy twists and turns that happen in between. Joining me on the show today is David Kushner. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, full disclosure to everybody, we have a long history together through your brother, my dear friend, Andy. And so we've known each other. We were talking before the show, I think, for at least 20 or 25 years and have had ourselves some wild times together. But it's just nice to know that we've got that much history between us. Unfortunately, I think it's a lot longer than 25 years. <laughs> I think it's well, actually. Are you ready for this? Yeah, I'm ready. It's close to 40. Well, I would say it's 35 years. Yeah, 35 years. Yeah. Jeez, a piece right. of wow, man. Time right. time flies. That that is that's freaking crazy. Yeah. Well, let's get right into it in terms of yeah. you, my friend. So you've published eleven books, I think, maybe more, at least eleven that I counted. You've written articles for Rolling Stone magazine, I think Masters of Doom, or is it A for Anonymous, How a Mysterious Hacker Collective Transformed the World? That that was your first book. And a couple of your articles in Rolling Stone, two of them, Dead End on Silk Road, Internet Crime Kingpin, Ross Ulbricht's Big Fall, and mm -hmm. Zola Tells All, the real story behind the greatest stripper saga ever tweeted. Both of those have been adapted into movies. Mm -hmm. So you've, you've got quite a bit going on, plus, you know, the Masters of Doom series, Jack, the Outlaw Story of Grand Theft Auto. And so I was looking through your material and everything you've published, written, or that's on the screen. And I was trying to find a common theme. Mm. And I realized there isn't really one common theme or thread, but there's there's an underpinning that I came up with like three or four words, which is internet, technology, gaming, and kind of the dark world. So I, I pulled those four things together. I, I couldn't quite put them into a sentence like mm. when you were interviewing uh, Tweety in your last Disruptor series, he talked about putting everything on just an index card. But I wanted to ask you, what is the genesis of your intrigue and attraction to the gaming industry? Like, why gaming? Is, is there something in your life that got you attracted to gaming and, and its impact on society? I grew up, you know, uh, I was in that Atari kind of generation, hanging out at video arcades, blowing my lawn mowing money, you know, on Defender and, and such. Um, so that was certainly a big part of my childhood and my adolescence. Um, very formative, you know, it wasn't just yeah. the games, it was the social aspect, hanging out, it was getting away from our parents, it was, you know, all of that. And um, so, you know, I, in college, after getting an aspiration to be a writer, and then moving to New York, in a way, it was a bit opportunistic, because, or not, or strategic, I guess, because, you know, I wanted to write for Rolling Stone, like, that was my goal, that was my, that was kind of the dream. And there were a lot of people writing for magazines. There were a lot of people covering music and sports and politics. And it was crowded. It was a crowded space with people who've been doing it a lot longer than me. I was young. Mm. You know, I was just out of college. Mm. And so I had, in the early 90s, worked for a bulletin board service, which 
you're you probably know what that means, but it's like you know BBS, which was before the web. It was dial up modems. You dial up to computers and all that. What What are you saying about me, Dave? Are you saying and so you know that? So I I it was the nascent digital culture. I would say right. in the early nineties of internet and also gaming, computer gaming, and so <clears throat> you know I worked in that space for a few years and. So I was kind of like an expert by default. I wasn't like a mm-hmm. technical person. I wasn't a programmer, but I I was into the cultural aspect and and I was into this what felt like a new world and um, was was opening up. And so I was just kind of like raised my hand and said, "Well, I can write about this stuff." And so I did, and that was really like you know the the first major magazine feature that I did were about gamers. Um, hmm. back in like 96, but, but like writing about them in a different way, more as a, you know, as this, um, it, it was kind of like the dawn of esports actually at that time. And, I remember uh, that. yeah, so, so that was it. I mean, it really was, it was just something that I felt like I could do and I could kind of carve out a little space for myself and, and build on that. Comfort there, connection to your childhood, your adolescence, kind of a little bit of wisdom and strategy on your part to to get your career launched in a way. And so much has come from that. So when you wrote Masters of Doom, How Two Guys Build an Empire and Transform Pop Culture, I mean, the story behind that book is so interesting. The two characters who you chronicle, their personalities, how they came together to form ID Software, one of the features that you talk about that I'm most curious about is the holodeck scene from Star Trek. Mm-hmm. So I went back and I looked at that video and I was just blown away by the possible comparison to when that was made with what augmented reality and Oculus and, mm-hmm. and different forms of media are today. So do, do you think that John Carmack ever thought that something like augmented reality as we know it today and where it's moving to would, would come to be? Yeah. I mean, John Carmack, you know, who was one of the co-founders of in software and is widely considered to be, you know, one of the best, if not the best graphics programmer on the planet. And who later went on to be the CTO of Oculus for Facebook. Right. He, absolutely was part of this gener- this generation who grew up you know watching uh, you know grew up on the holodeck grew up on science fiction kind of came of age around the time of like you know there were books seminal books like snow crash um science fiction book which introduced this idea of the metaverse and mm. you know w- william gibson's book neuromancer so the, this idea was out there and the holodeck was certainly out there as like this ultimate virtual experience. You know, you could just like open a door and be somewhere else that's simulated, but feels real like the matrix. Yeah. And so, yeah, that was it explicitly at the forefront of his brain. And back when I was researching, you know, that book living down in Dallas in 2000, um, he and I, and, and they'd already become, you know, they were already at that point one of the most acclaimed renowned game developers um, that had ever been. He was very much focused on what he called this kind of imperative to create virtual reality. Um, mm. 
to create, you know, this sort of metaverse space because he had some ideology there, which is that, you know, in the real world, you, you might have limited resources, but you could create kind of unlimited resources in a virtual world right. and distribute wealth in a different way. So oh. he was a kind of a profound thinker on that. And, and also what was interesting is that he had the skills to realize it, maybe better than anybody. So those early games that they were working on, you know, Doom and Quake, these are first-person shooters where you're running around with a gun blowing up, you know, um, zombies and stuff. Those, they're those, so much fun. Yeah, they're fun. And But there was something beneath the surface. And what they were is that those were uh, stepping stones on the way to a virtual world. And right. he was explicit about that. I understood that at the time. And it was really remarkable now to sit here 21 years later and see where that's come and how, how much that really has come to fruition with, you know, and even specifically with him. I mean, he went on to go head that initiative at Facebook. Facebook just rebrands itself meta, mm. um, which is all about this. So, you know, these guys it's crazy. Were, were the architects and the engineers of this beginning decades ago. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Facebook's just rebranding itself, Meta, mm-hmm. the Metaverse, the Metaverse connection, and the work that you've done. And but I'd, I'd like to just pivot in kind of a connected way to your one of your earlier articles in Rolling Stone, where you interviewed, I think it was Rolling Stone, you interviewed Zuckerberg, and I think the title of it was "I Can Feel Myself Changing." So mm-hmm. if you were to if you were to sit down now with Zuckerberg after what he's just gone through and the renaming of the company and for all the reasons that they did that and you were to ask him well how do you feel yourself changing now mm-hmm. like what do you imagine he would say Gosh I don't know I mean you know I think that um I mean when I caught up with him he was 21 Wow you know I mean he was I wrote that article for Rolling Stone in, I think I met with him in like 2004, 2005. So it was, it was, I'm pretty sure it was his first major like magazine profile and he was way more accessible. I mean, I was able to just make arrangements with him and go to Palo Alto, you know, just for hanging out in his one bedroom apartment, you know, drinking green tea. Yeah, basically. And all he had, I'll just, you know, he had a mattress on the floor and a guitar and an amp. And he and he made it a point to tell me that he hadn't even gotten around to buying a shower curtain, you know. <laughs> so, um, and, but I don't know. I mean, I yeah. think that that guy is, even back then, I can say, like, he was... There was a remove, you know, he he had a remove and he had like, I remember I would ask him questions and he kind of, you know, scrunch up his forehead and like, he was, he was really an engineer. That was the thing about him. I think that struck me most. And mm. I don't know what this means now, you know, and I don't know how different he is, but I don't know, if, you know, fundamentally, I don't know how much people do change really. I mean, I, not that we don't evolve. I mean, of course we do, mm-hmm. but there's sort of a core thing, right? It's like yeah. you and I have known each other a while. I mean, you know, there's right. that core essence of somebody. Mark, you know, I remember back at the time, my editor was really pushing me to push Mark on um, this question of selling Facebook to Yahoo. I think Yahoo 
had offered them like a billion dollars or supposedly back in like 2005. And And my editor was just like, you got it. You know, he's got some master plan. What's he doing? Why didn't he take the money? And so then I remember asking him and I'm like, so why didn't you take the money? And that's when he kind of scrunched up his forehead. Like I, it was almost like I asked him something crazy (laughs) and he said, because um, I I just want to build something. I just want to build something cool. Wow. You know, and I mean, this this, this is something that, you know, I'm I'm grateful for the professional experience I've had and like the vantage point I've had, which is that I've met a lot of these people right out of the gate. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I've written about them, like not just met them, but like spent a lot of time with them you know, and, and, and got to try to figure out what makes them tick and whether it's, you know, Zuckerberg or, you know, these, the, the, um, the software guys, even Julian Assange, I wrote the first profile of him back in like 2009 and, you know, and you mentioned Silk Road. I mean, you know, that Ross Ulbricht created the first and largest online marketplace for, for illegal drugs so there's a lot of like sizzle and flare around these people in very different ways. But fundamentally, I think they all have one thing in common, which is that they're engineers. Uh, you know, they, they, that they want to build things, you know, Zuckerberg, right. you know, whether or not you think he's an evil genius, the guy who I hung out with was someone who was wanting to build something. Didn't mean that he didn't want to cash in. It didn't mean that he didn't, you know, wasn't making some decisions that were questionable and so on. But I, I felt like the motivation there was to build something that a lot of people would use. And maybe in a way that's like an expression of ego, you know, Mm -hmm. that you want to feel like wanting to feel valuable. But, but that, I think that really was the drive. And I think that when I see him now and talking about the metaverse and all of that, I mean, again, you know, people could listen to this and think that maybe it's naive to say that he wants to just build something cool. But I think that there is that in there. You mm-hmm. know? I, I mm-hmm. think that's the drive for many of these people. In mm-hmm. that field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, clearly I can see that each of them is builders of a different sort. And what they started out building often morphs and takes a change direction and then they move with that and they move a Lego block from left to right, top to yeah. bottom, and, and they keep building. Yeah. Uh, and you're you're also a builder of sorts. You know, you've got the Masters of series, Masters of Doom to begin with, and soon Masters of Disruption, how the gamer generation built the future. And I was thinking about the title of that, and I was like, I wonder what David thinks about or is writing about and how the next generation is going to build the future like what from augmented reality and artificial intelligence and these evolving technologies that are becoming more interlaced interwoven in our lives many and mostly for positive ways what what do you think that future is going to look like being built by the gamer generation um i think that we're already in it I mean, that's the thing is that, like, I wrote a story about Ray Kurzweil, who, oh, you know, he is... I love him. 
Right. And, and so he was, he's um, an inventor and he's a guy who, uh, you know, is very accomplished and, and coming up with the, you know, and synthesizers and like OCR technology and curse wheel AI. He's got yeah, that. all that stuff. And, and very, you know, presidential medals. But he also has this idea of the singularity, which is that, you know, computer intelligence is going to surpass human intelligence within our lifetimes. And it'll be this moment of either, you know, <laughs> immortality or doom. Who knows? If you ever see him speak, um, he does a thing where he'll stand there and he'll take out his phone and he'll say, you know, if I told you that you would have access to all of human knowledge in your pocket. Right. If I told you that, like whatever it was 10, 15 years ago, you would say that's impossible. But now we have these phones and we're just complaining that, you know, whatever, the, the Wi-Fi is not working great. I mean, there's <laughs> so I need so, 5G. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that the way that I look at it is that it's we're already in it. Like our generation too. you know, we're, we're constantly toggling between do, two different worlds you know mm. there's and i look at it like there's one world you know we're looking through this little glass screen that we mm. hold in our hands mm. but that's just a portal into this other world where we're living working spending all so much time and energy and not in a physical space because mentally when you're looking into that window you're kind of on the other side of the screen so mm. I feel like, you know, all of these aspects of all of these innovations, whether it's AR, VR, they're all just um, tools and, and technology that are bringing that world more into the forefront or integrating more into our, you know, into our daily lives. So the gamers knew this and grew up with this and were... And are the ones who are building it. You know, that's just the fact. And and it, it has been weird for me because I wrote that book 20 odd years ago. And to see how far reaching what what that generation was doing is just incredible in terms mm. of from everything from uh, I mean, not not just specifically inventing the kind of games that became popular, like first person shooters, but esports you know what i mean as yeah, one, the whole uh, whole industry that's come out of it i mean it's just grown horizontal yeah uh, the whole industry and a way of thinking and also just in terms of like hacking and modif user you know modifications and the idea that they would release a game they would make some of the code um available so that players could get in there and change um an imp to uh, a stormtrooper from star wars you know, at the time, that was completely heretical. The idea that you would give a player access to your code so that they could change the content or make their own game, that, that was crazy. crazy. At the time. But right. the thing is now, you know, now you look, everything's about personalization and engagement. And oh, definitely. So, so, yeah, I mean, that's just always been my perspective is that hmm. we're, we're, you know, that the future is now. Yeah. Wow. Well, that means wherever we are in the future, we'll always be in the present tense. Um, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You wrote a mem. You wrote your memoir recently mm -hmm. in 2016, and I was thinking about that. And I was like, you know, 
okay, so we're in the boomer generation, but we're not that old. And so why did you choose? I'm, to I'm still in the Gen X generation, Gary. Excuse Careful. me. I beg your okay. pardon, Dave. Yeah. I beg your pardon. <laughs> I mean, may, maybe you're on the cusp, but, right. but uh, I must yeah. see myself as a Gen Xer then because right. I'm young at spirit, of course. Okay. Uh, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm on the lower end of the boomer generation. Okay. Just to be clear. So I'm okay. almost a Gen Xer. Right. Uh, I have a patch that says you're an honorary Gen Xer. I okay. like to wear it. We will accept you. Yeah. Thank you very much. I appreciate <laughs> that. Um, <laughs> but, but why, why write a memoir now and will you do you think you'll write another one later well i mean that one that i wrote gosh was it five years ago already i mean look i mean that was obviously that's the story of my life and yeah. you know i when i was four i had an older brother who was 11 at the time who was kidnapped and murdered by a couple strangers and you know it was something that you know uh, obviously I live with that every day. Um, but then I was also a writer. So <clears throat> I felt like, you know, this is a story that I wanted to tell and always thought about how to tell it for a lot of reasons. So to, to finally do that was an incredible, it was profound. And I was very grateful to have had the opportunity, you know, and, and so I wrote that and then I, it actually got it adapted kind of into a podcast which mm. i did which came out this past year you know it's a six-part serial podcast can i just can i just say for people listening to this podcast that i listened to that entire six-part series podcast called alligator candy and it is it is simultaneously compelling and um, shocking and so human um, it just was, uh, it's something that had a big impact on me. So I, I thank you for putting that out there. That had to take enormous courage to, to do that. that. Yeah, absolutely, that. man. That's totally um, real. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah. It, it's been nice to evolve as not just a person, but, you know, as a writer, because I think that, you know, I was always like writing from my own experience and obviously from my own interests and all of that. But to get to a point where I could tell, figure out a way to tell like the most personal story of my life, you know, the most yeah. intimate story, but tell yeah. it in a way that felt, it's weird to say the word relevant, but like, I didn't want to just write my story and have all the attention on me and, and you know, and, and, and. Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't interested in that. And that's why mm -hmm. I do it for a long time because I just, uh -huh. like, it's not enough. It's not enough. Mm -hmm. And I'm a journalist, you know, mm -hmm. that's who I am. Like, that's how I see the world. And mm -hmm. um, so it, it, it was, it took a long time to figure out what to do. And it, it happened organically, you know, after my father died because I don't know. It just got me thinking about loss and grief and, and, and um, how you live with that. And, um, and then I kept coming back to this question that people would always ask, you know, when they heard our, my family story, which was how did your parents survive? Mm. So when I thought about that, when that really occurred to me, I was like, I can write this book. Now mm. I can write it because now there's a purpose. Like the purpose is to answer this question. How did my parents survive? Mm. Because I mm -hmm. think if I can do that, 
if I can write about how did this, and obviously I can write it from the inside because I was part of that family. So, you know, it's like, just as a journalist, I'm thinking about, okay, I'm in the story. I, I, I can draw on my own experience and my own emotions and all that, but I can also kind of at the same time have this idea in mind, how does someone survive Mm. unimaginable loss? Mm. Because we all face loss, you know, every day loss is there. Right. Everybody all the time, job, friends, husbands, wives, parents, whatever it is, we all COVID. All oh, lost so oh, many oh, people yeah. face it's horrendous. Right. And yeah. so, as the child of my parents, you know, I too wondered that because I had kids of my own. How the fuck did they survive? I don't know how they did it. You know, so that was kind of the beacon for that that project, and also for the podcast. You know, and how do you find and and you know, and I actually found some answers. You know, that I think are like extensible, and 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 um, you know, and those were answers came out of the community, you know, that was a huge part of it there. Um, and I think it also, a big part of it came out of their activism, their social yeah. activism. So that was great to learn about that. Yeah. So I learned a lot from that. And so I've certainly, I've written other first person, you know, stories. I mean, in fact, I just had a podcast come out yesterday, which is about, I went to this, mysterious cave in the Amazon of a couple of years ago for outside magazine. And that was a completely wild experience. So, you know, the pod, that podcast is about my trip to the cave. To me, it's just about like, what's the story, you yeah. know? And, and, and if my experience of th- something is, is a story or a way in it, then I'll do that. But you know, I'm not Hunter Thompson. <laughs> like, I'm not somebody who's just, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not, I'm not the character who, no, if I just go to the bank, it's going to be hilarious and fascinating. You For know, those people who might not know who Hunter Thompson is, was is he still alive? Is he? No, no, he passed not that long. Anyway, himself. Yeah. Oh God. Well, he was a journalist who a movie was made about for his fear and loathing in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. and just quick little story. When you, Dave, were at the University of Maryland running the kind of concert and program series there, and I had a video production company, you were kind enough to allow me to come in on a gratis basis and videotape Hunter S. Thompson at the Ritchie Coliseum, I think it was, on the Maryland Mm -hmm. campus, something like that. So there I was standing in the back on some concrete platform um, in the very back of the auditorium, like, you know, two stories up. Hunter S. Thompson comes out on stage with a fifth of some sort of bourbon or whiskey or Jack Daniels. It was a bottle of Chivas Regal Scotch that I bought and that he drank during the lecture, the entire bottle. I watched the, the entire bottle. That's yeah. what was so amazing to me. This guy was like hurling out pearls of wisdom or pearls <laughs> of swine. I'm not sure which mm. and drinking and the audience was so into it. And then for some reason, he mm-hmm. chose to affix his gaze the furthest point physically that he could be from the stage to the back of the auditorium, which was me standing mm-hmm. up on a platform videotaping. And he started saying, hey, you video camera guy back there, like, what are you doing? I'm like, right. who is he talking to? Right. It was crazy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you you are you are a, a journalist and, and it's great that you brought the first person point of view to that story. 
it was so touching. There's a lot of lessons for all of us in it, and I I was inspired by it. I, I just want to end by asking you my favorite question. It's the name of this podcast. So what's next now for you? What is next now for me? You know, I don't know if you're like this, but I have outsourced my brain to my computer. <laughs> I think that's called Google, isn't it? I think. Yeah, I don't know how to answer any questions unless I look <laughs> at my... So I'm actually going to look at my computer. Um, no, I don't mean what's next now like oh, in 10 right. minutes from now. I just mean kind of metaphorically. No, like, I know what you're asking. Oh, okay. I'm, just, I'm just trying to remember what I'm working on. But like, um, no, I mean, I'm working on a lot of articles, you know, I'm still, I just got back from Portugal where I, I'm writing about digital nomads, which I'm really interested in how sort of, you know, the pandemic is terraforming our work lives. Mm, (laughs) Um, mm. And so a lot of people have figured this out to go live in, you know, in Portugal and, and whatever day trade cryptocurrency and, or work remotely. So I'm still doing articles and then, you know, getting more into producing and things like that for Hollywood and TV and film. And yeah, just telling stories, you know, that's, that's what I do. So, well, man, what a, what a kick it's been to have you on the show today, telling some stories. I hope many people will enjoy this. I, I know they will. And, uh, so damn nice reconnecting with you, Dave. Yeah, it was fun. I just want to say for thanks sure. for being on, on What's Next Now. Absolutely. Thanks. That was fun. Cool, man. Cool.